Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Afflicting the Comfortable. It's based upon the lectionary readings for July 14, 2019. In her 2015 book, The Short Stories of Jesus, New Testament and Jewish Studies professor Amy Jill Levine suggests that religion is meant, quote, to comfort the afflicted, and to afflict the comfortable. She further suggests that we would do well to think of the parables of Jesus as doing this afflicting. If we hear a parable and think, I really like that, or worse, fail to take any challenge, we are not listening well enough. The difficulty for me, and I assume for many Christians, is that Jesus' parables are so familiar and beloved I don't tend to read them as afflictions. I've heard these short stories a zillion times. I believe I know them inside out and backwards, and therein lies the great danger. They don't challenge me. I read, I nod, and I walk away, unafflicted and unchanged. The Gospel reading for this week, the parable of the Good Samaritan, presents exactly this danger. A man on a journey is robbed and left for dead. A priest and a Levite pass him by, and the Samaritan stops and helps. The Samaritan, showing mercy, exemplifies the same neighborliness I am called to practice as a Christian. Jesus' lesson? Be like the Samaritan. Be a nice person. Go and do what he did. Okay, but is that all? What would Jesus' original audience have made of this glib reading? Would they have agreed with it? Surely there's nothing wrong with interpreting the Good Samaritan parable as a go-and-do-likewise story. After all, we are called to be imitators of Christ, to assist others, to show concern, and to offer compassionate care to those in need or trouble. The Good Samaritan offers us a beautiful example to follow, and we would do well to pay attention. But again, is that all? Is that all the afflicting the story has for us? Or did Jesus have something more provocative in mind? Perhaps it will help to place the story in its fuller context. As Luke tells it, a lawyer approaches Jesus with a million-dollar question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I know that scholars often give the lawyer a bad rap for testing Jesus, but I like the boldness of his question. If it's a genuine one, it means the lawyer wants to live fully and intentionally. He doesn't want to mess around in the shallows with his remaining years on earth. He wants to deep sea dive. Show me the good stuff, Jesus. Show me the path to eternal life. But Jesus is too savvy a teacher to answer the question directly. So he turns it back on his would-be student. What is written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer, no fool himself, gives Jesus a concise A-plus answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus congratulates the lawyer on his doctrinal precision. You've given the right answer and encourages him to take the essential next step. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, 
miffed, perhaps, that Jesus isn't more impressed by his textbook smarts, asks for further clarification. Who is my neighbor? May I put the question more crassly? I wonder if what the lawyer really means is, who is not my neighbor? As in, how much love are we talking here, Jesus? Can you be specific? Where should I draw the line? Outside my front door? At the edges of my neighborhood? Along the religious and cultural boundaries I was raised with to keep me pure and holy? I mean, there are lines, aren't there? There must be lines. We can't be neighbors with everyone. I assume the lawyer would have loved to discuss ad nauseum the finer points of responsible neighborliness. What better way to put off getting his hands dirty than to talk theory for hours? But Jesus doesn't take the bait. Instead, he tells a story. A story whose main character we know so well, we've named hospitals, nursing homes, relief agencies, and philanthropic organizations after him. In the U.S., he even has a law coined in his honor. Any modern-day good Samaritan who stops to help a stranger along the road enjoys certain legal protections for her trouble. As Jesus tells it, a man is walking down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho when he's attacked by bandits. They rob, beat, strip, and leave him for dead. Soon afterwards, a priest comes by. Seeing the wounded man, he passes by on the other side of the road. A short while later, a Levite does likewise. But then a Samaritan comes along. Seeing the stranded victim, he draws close and feels great pity. Using whatever makeshift supplies he has on hand, he bandages the man's wounds, anoints him with oil and wine, carries him to the nearest inn on his own animal, pays the innkeeper for the victim's further care, and promises to return in a few days' time to settle any outstanding bills. So, Jesus asked the lawyer at the conclusion of the story, which of the three was a neighbor to the man who was robbed? The one who showed him mercy, the lawyer replies. Go and do likewise, Jesus says again. Do this and you will live. Do this. Draw close. Show mercy. Extend kindness. Live out your theology and hands-on care for other people. Don't just think love. Do it. Okay, makes sense to me. But wait, I'm not afflicted yet, are you? What are we missing? Here's a possibility. What if the story changes depending on where we locate ourselves within it? If you're like me, you probably locate yourself in the priest and the Levite on your bad days and in the Good Samaritan on your good days. Sometimes we see a need and we pass it by because we're too busy, preoccupied, afraid, overwhelmed, or tired. But sometimes we follow the Good Samaritan's example beautifully and reach out to those in need, no matter what the cost. We go and do likewise, just as Jesus commands. But what if Jesus' parable is more than a good example to follow story? What if it's a reversal story? A story intended to upset our categories of good and bad, sacred and profane, benefactor and recipient. If we too easily and comfortably identify with the Good Samaritan in this parable, we're missing the point. Maybe the whole point of the Samaritan is that he is not us. By the time Jesus told the story in first century Palestine, the enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans was ancient 
entrenched and bitter. The two groups disagreed about everything that mattered, how to honor God, how to interpret the scriptures, and how and where to worship. They practiced their faith in separate temples, read different versions of the Torah, and avoided social contact with each other whenever possible. Truth be told, they hated each other's guts. Though we are inclined to love the Good Samaritan, Jesus' choice to make him good, to make him of all people the hero of the story, was nothing less than scandalous to his original listeners' ears. To put this in more contemporary language, the Samaritan was the other, the alien, the heretic, the object of fear, condescension, disgust, and judgment. Is there anything we can do in our 21st century lives to recover the scandal at the heart of this parable? Because its heart is a scandal. Think about it this way. Who was the last person on earth you'd ever want to deem the good guy? The last person you'd ever want to ask for a favor, much less owe your life? Whom do you secretly hope to convert, fix, impress, control, or save, but never, ever need? May I throw out some possibilities? A progressive Democrat is robbed and a far-right Republican saves her life. A racist white cop is robbed and an African-American teenager saves his life. A transgender woman is robbed and an anti-LGBTQ activist saves her life. An outspoken atheist is robbed and a Bible-thumping fundamentalist saves his life. A Border Patrol agent is robbed and an undocumented immigrant saves his life. I don't mean for a moment to trivialize the real and consequential differences that divide us politically, religiously, racially, or ideologically. I dare not do that, not when those differences are even today costing people their lives. But the enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans in Jesus' day was not theoretical. It was embodied and real. The differences between them were not easily negotiated. Each was fully convinced that the other was wrong. So what Jesus did when he deemed the Samaritan good was radical and risky. It stunned his Jewish listeners. He was asking them to dream of a different kind of kingdom. He was inviting them to consider the possibility that a person might add up to more than the sum of her political, racial, cultural, and economic identities. He was calling them to put aside the history they knew and the prejudices they nursed. He was asking them to leave room for divine, and world-altering surprises. What does it mean to be afflicted by this story? It means locating ourselves not in the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, but in the wounded man dying on the road. Notice that he is the only character in the story not defined by profession, social class, or religious belief. He has no identity at all except naked need. Maybe we have to occupy his place in the story first. Maybe we have to become the broken one, grateful to anyone at all who will show us mercy, before we can feel the unbounded compassion of the Good Samaritan. Why? Because all tribalisms fall away on the broken road. All divisions of us and them disappear of necessity. When you're lying bloody in a ditch, what matters is not whose help you'd prefer, whose way of practicing Christianity you like best, whose politics you agree with. 
What matters is whether or not anyone will stop to show you mercy before you die. If it hasn't happened yet, your encounter on that dark road, it will. Somehow, someday, somewhere, it will. In a hospital room, at a graveside, after a marriage fails, when a cherished job goes bust, after the storm, the betrayal, the war, the injury, the diagnosis, somehow, someday, somewhere, in every single one of our lives, it will happen. When it does, it won't be your theology that saves you. It won't be your cherished affiliations that matter. All that will matter is how quickly you swallow your pride and grab hold of that hand you hoped never to touch. How readily you'll agree to receive help from the enemy you fear. How long you'll persist in your Lone Ranger fantasy before you allow the unsavory other to bless you. Who is my neighbor? the lawyer asked. Your neighbor is the one who scandalizes you with compassion, Jesus answered. Your neighbor is the one who upends all your entrenched categories and shocks you with the fresh face of God. Your neighbor is the one who mercifully steps over the ancient, bloody line separating us from them and teaches you the real meaning of good. What shall we do to inherit eternal life? Do this. Suffer the vulnerable-making affliction of this. Recognize yourself in the desperate victim and allow the one you hate the most to snatch you back from death. Do this, and you will live. For books this week, Dan reviews In Praise of Wasting Time by Alan Lightman. The ever-expanding TED Talks now include a series of two dozen books that, according to their website, are long enough to explore a powerful idea, but short enough to read in a single sitting. TED Books pick up where TED Talks leave off. Alan Lightman, a physicist and novelist at MIT, tackles one of the most disturbing trends of our age, our obsession with time, speed, and efficiency that is driven by our wired world and that leads to all sorts of unfortunate consequences like overstimulation, distraction, loneliness, isolation, and depression. In his thought number 139, Pascal observed that all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. The Japanese even have a word for overwork death, karoshi, that is caused primarily by heart attack and stroke due to stress and a starvation diet. Lightman wants to change this. In the first part of his book, he documents what has now become obvious to many people, the many manifestations of our distracted age. He cites numerous scientific studies, along with examples from his own life, like how he changed when he finally bought a smartphone. Our technological advances have come at a steep price, like the loss of creativity, peace of mind, our social psychological ethos, and nothing less than the destruction of our inner selves. In the last half of the book, Lightman proposes that we return to things like play, doing things purely for fun and amusement, creating spaces for our minds to wander, downtime, meditation, and stillness. We somehow need to create a new habit of mind as individuals and as a society. We need a mental attitude that values and protects stillness, privacy, solitude, slowness, 
personal reflection that honors the inner self, that allows each of us to wander about that schedule within our own minds. Christians have their own traditions of silence, of course. Be still and know that I am God. One thinks of the Trappist monks who take a vow of silence, or the Eastern Orthodox mystical tradition of contemplative prayer. And we are commanded to rest and be like God, who did not work on the seventh day. In the words of the poet Wendell Berry, that mind that comes to rest is tended in ways it cannot intend, is born, preserved, and comprehended by what it cannot comprehend. For more on this important subject, I recommend two movies, Walk With Me, about the monastery of the Vietnamese Buddhist Thich Nhat Hanh, and Integrate Silence, about the remote monastery Grand Chartreuse. And then the books by Jaron Lanier, You Are Not a Gadget, and 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. Sherry Turkle, Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in a Digital Age, and Erling Kagi's Silence in the Age of Noise. For films this week, Dan reviews Free Solo. A friend of mine who watched Free Solo said that it was the only movie he had ever watched that made him sweat, and with good reason. The documentary film tells the story of the rock climber Alex Honnold, born in 1985, who on June 3, 2017, became the first and only person to make a free solo ascent, no ropes, of the 2,900 feet El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. The climb took three hours and 56 minutes. The movie was made by National Geographic. It opened at the Telluride and Toronto Film Festivals and then went on to win the Oscar for the Best Documentary Feature Film in 2019. A dropout of UC Berkeley, Honnold has lived in a van for about 10 years, despite his more recent success and fame that has featured him on the likes of 60 Minutes. There are two interesting subplots in this movie in addition to the climb itself, the ethical and practical questions of the film director and his crew. They didn't want to interfere with the climb, nor did they want to film a disaster. And second, Honnold, who's an odd duck to say the least, struggles to maintain a single-minded focus on climbing while doing justice to his relationship with his girlfriend, Sani McClandless. On Rotten Tomatoes, Free Solo enjoys a rating of 99%, based upon 135 reviews. Lastly, for poems this week, Stephen Levine's If Prayer Would Do It. If prayer would do it, I'd pray. If reading esteemed thinkers would do it, I'd be halfway through the patriarchs. If discourse would do it, I'd be sitting with His Holiness every moment he was free. If contemplation would do it, I'd have translated the periodic table to hermit poems, converting matter to spirit. If even fighting would do it, I'd already be a black belt. If anything other than love could do it, I'd have done it already and left the hardest for last. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for July 14th, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.